Welcome to Let's Talk Memoir, a podcast for memoir lovers, readers, and writers. I'm your host, Ronit Plank. Today, my guest is Camille T. Dungy. She's the author of the essay collection Guidebook to Relative Strangers, Journeys into Race, Motherhood, and History, a finalist for the National Book Critics Circle Award. She has edited three anthologies, including Black Nature, Four Centuries of African-American Nature Poetry. Her honors include the 2021 Academy of American Poets Fellowship, a Guggenheim Fellowship, and an American Book Award. She is a university distinguished professor at Colorado State University, and her new book is Soil, the story of a black mother's garden. Welcome, Camille. Hello, Ronit. It's so lovely to be here. Oh, it's so wonderful to have you here. And we were just talking about your new book, which as of this airing is officially in the world. So congratulations. Happy birthday, book. <laughs> Happy birthday. I have a copy of your book. I put a birthday hat on it. We're sitting here with cake. Um, I so love ex- cake. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Me too. I was in an event last night for my son's uh, wrestling but it was like a wrestling banquet to congratulate the team. And there was food and there's awards and there's a video. And I was like, where is the cake? And then <laughs> I was like, you know, I'm Jewish. I love cake. I was like, where's the cake? This isn't a thing without the cake. And then lo and behold, they brought out two cakes. And I thought that's now it's a now, real Now it's a thing. <laughs> yeah. So we were just talking before we started recording about this book launch for you. And, and I would love to circle back as we, when we end, I want to talk about it a little bit, but your other books, I mean, this is a really, this book is a big event. And I was wondering if you can talk a little bit about, I mean, all books, let me stop. All books are big events for our, the writers, of course, but I wanted you to have a chance to share a little bit about this collection and talk about maybe what's different about the release of this book from your other books. Mm-hmm. I think, mm- my career has been this steady progress, right? This idea that we, I think we speak about a lot and hear about a lot as writers, that it can, it's a patience and it can be a long game and to really appreciate each step in the journey. So I feel like this book is this next step in a journey I've, um, published, this will be my ninth book with my name on the spine. I published my first book in 2006. And it it did well, all my books, everything's still in print, everything's still chugging along. My anthology, I edited an anthology, I created and edited an anthology called Black Nature, Four Centuries of African American Nature Poetry. And that anthology is still one of the bestsellers for University of Georgia Press. It's, it's still, it's, um, it had its bar mitzvah last year. Wait, would you have said that if I hadn't told you I was Jewish? I actually have been thinking about it in that way because <laughs> it turned 13. I grew up in a in a community with a with a large population of, of Jewish folks. And so went to a lot of bar and bar mitzvahs <laughs> when I was in middle school. Um, and so it's a tradition that I understand in terms of not just the party and the cake, but that doing work, right? That idea of doing important work and study and like learning how to read the book, right? Mm-hmm. And how to mm-hmm. share the book with 
others and share your understanding of 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 in that in the case of the the bar mitzvah the torah but the message and the word and the meaning with other people and how to help other people do good work in the world and that's what i hope the black nature is doing that's what i hope all my books are doing and soil feels like this in many ways, this culmination, I, I do not want to use the word culmination I'm uh, because I don't want it to be the end. Yeah, um, but right, right, but right. this this next major step in this pro progression that I feel like black nature was a kind of coming of age mm -hmm. for me as as a thinking as an environmental thinker and uh, reshaping ideas about who speaks about the greater than human world and how um, that's one of the things that black nature had a major impact on changing people's idea of the fact that oh wait black poets <laughs> black poets have been doing this all along as well and so soil soil is this next step in this conversation and moving into prose, um, moving to Simon & Schuster, which is a major mm -hmm. publisher with, um, with a kind of reach that's just truly exciting and I'll be honest, a little bit daunting mm -hmm. <laughs> um, to be able to share this, share this important to me message mm -hmm. even further. Mm -hmm. It is so important. And I don't read a lot of nature literature or environmental literature, not on purpose. It just hasn't happened yet that I've sought it out. And it's very new to me. And it's also, it was uh, a respite for me to read your book, among many other things. I felt like it's almost like when I was, when I began it, I felt like, you know, it didn't like, it wasn't like a traumatic or violent, like start to a story the way so many memoirs, you know, like the memoirs that I read, especially for the show, you know, they'd like really grab you by the collar right away. And they, you know, they like make you sit and listen because you cannot look away. And with yours, I felt like I was dipping into a cool pool and slowly mm -hmm. going deeper and deeper into it to rest and to look around and reflect. And mm -hmm. I really appreciated that. Thank you. That sounds like the work I put into organizing the structure worked. That's yeah. exciting to hear. Yes. And, and so I'm wondering, you know, I, I, I wonder if you always had this fascination or interest in gardens. I mean, I know that it sounds like your parents from reading the book definitely cultivated a garden uh, when you were growing up. But when when were you aware personally of your deep appreciation for the natural world that world that you explore in soil? Mm -hmm. It's such an interesting question. I think probably, um, as with many things that we come to love, it was both always there and a gradual increase or expansion, um, both in in interest, knowledge, and access. Mm. <laughs> and so I think I, as you said, I grew up in a home. My parents were very mindful of, they, they just always made beautiful landscapes um, mm. in the yards around us. My dad grows the best tomatoes. Mm. So good. Mm. <laughs> and, and you live nearby, um, right? You live in the And same... I live nearby. I you do not do so well with tomatoes. I just go to his house. <laughs> <laughs> he is tomato. Well, that's, that's what he's for. <laughs> 
And that's the thing about the summer tomato bounty. He has too many when he has uh -huh. them. And I, I, I'm just doing a service by eating them <laughs> for him. <laughs> but this is really, I owned a home once when I lived in Virginia. I owned a home, but for, for a very, very brief period of time and never really was able to make a garden outside there. So this was really my first home that I was able to make these kinds of changes in a permanent way that mm -hmm. I wasn't going to move on because it was rented or because I was uh, mm -hmm. you know, an academic and was just floating around in the way that academics do. Mm -hmm. And so we, when we bought this home, one of my first thoughts was that I was going to convert the monocultural landscape around it into a much more heterogeneous, diverse space that honored the native Western um, flora and fauna that are mm -hmm. here. Like, mm -hmm. I just knew that right along. But then, you know, you can say I'm going to do that and then realize eventually that it's like o almost all you're doing sometimes, yes, <laughs> you know, that it like yes, so takes over in a way. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. And so that that was gradual, that mm -hmm. um, interest. And then when it started to sneak into my writing, mm -hmm. I often... Um, for listeners who don't know, I have a child, I have a daughter, and I trained as a poet, and I, I was raised up in what I like to call the person from Porlock School. There's a famous 19th century poem where somebody knocks on the door, uh, it's a businessman from Porlock, and interrupts the poet's reveries, and we're never going to get the rest of this beautiful trance poem um, because of this person from Porlock. But when you have a child, as I do, <laughs> there's a person from Porlock knocking on your door every five minutes. Um, and so... I had to change the way I wrote and I had to rethink how to be a poet, but I wanted to still be writing. And for some reason I can write prose with infinite interruptions. I can just write a piece of prose and be interrupted in the middle of a sentence and come back a day or a week or months mm -hmm. later and know kind of where I was going and keep on that journey. And so I found prose once I had my daughter. And there are times where I just don't have a lot of time and I just give myself 20 minutes a day and I just sit down and write for 20 minutes and then the next day I write for 20 minutes and eventually my obsessions accumulate and I begin to understand where I'm going and some of my obsessions in 2020 when I was doing these 20 minute exercises turned to my garden and more and more and more, I found myself writing about the space outside, immediately outside my home, in that time where we were so locked into our home. Mm. Um, and mm. so that, I think, is how I came to realizing that that was going to be central to this, to this mm -hmm. book or to this writing project. Yeah, and I didn't realize, I mean, I know 2020, the pandemic, everything is in this book so much, the election of he who shall not be named, and it's so um, present within the story, and I realized then that I wonder if you would have written a book such as this had you not had the pandemic, you know, if you would have gotten well, to the garden that way. I don't know, because I had... I had that Guggenheim year. I was granted a Guggenheim fellowship for 2020. And so I had that year off from teaching. And in my 
in my um, application for the Guggenheim, I did say that I wanted to pay attention to the things that were growing out of the earth around me. So I think I was already mm. leaning in that direction. But I think some of the some of the focuses in the book where I'm really thinking about how impossible it is for me as a mother um, and a writer to not include the the people inside mm -hmm. my house and the world inside my house. I wonder if I would have been, maybe I would have been more able to slide into the tradition of environmental writing, which so frequently erases all the other people who are in the observer's life. And it's just like people walking into the woods by themselves. <laughs> Maybe I would have been able to do that because my daughter would have been at school and I would I have my writing time in the solitude and then she would come home and I could shut off writer mm -hmm. mind and become mother mind. But I could not do that at all because mm -hmm. I was responsible for her remote schooling and she was there. And then I was like, and why not? Why shouldn't she be here in my writing? Why, why is there such this tradition so frequently in environmental writing, but in so much writing, honestly, where you're either writing about the inside of your house and these domestic matters, or you're writing about some sort of great political things on the outside. You can't, it's not a blend. Mm -hmm. um, and I just, um, I'm finished with that. I'm just finished with that. And um, I'm, I may have gotten there, but I got there a lot, a lot more quickly mm -hmm. <laughs> because of the, the circumstances of 2020. Oh gosh. And that just dovetails so well into the question I have about Annie Dillard's Pilgrim at Tinker Creek because that book comes up a bit in soil and you I was hoping you could give a bit of background about the role that book played in your life and in writing the book mm -hmm. yes and um and so that's a great example of the fact that I probably would have gotten there um anyway because in the book I describe being very frustrated with some major text in environmental writing um, and my daughter asking me why I was so angry. I was setting the table with <laughs> great fervor <laughs> and she was like, what's up with you, mom? And I explained that I was frustrated by this absenting of people um, in the writer's lives in the environmental canon. And my daughter and I came up with a lovely little song um, that we sang about that um, erasure. And that was before the pandemic. So I was already thinking about that. And I was I had read reread Pilgrim, Pilgrim at Tinker Creek also before the shutdowns began and was like, I mean, this is beautiful writing. She is an amazing writer and an amazing thinker. But also why? Why? Why did she construct herself in such a solitary mode? And what was particularly galling to me, or is particularly galling mm. to me, was this sort of sense that here she is just walking out, looking, I'm quoting her, looking at the tree with the lights in it and wandering through these sort of open fields. And she's writing in one of the most tumultuous cultural and political moments in American history. And she is writing in the epicenter of some of the biggest 
civil rights and women's rights struggles in America in the center of it. Mm. And it's like that just is disappeared from the work. And I, I have grown intolerant of that. <laughs> like I just, mm. I just, I can't be interested. I can't be fully interested and engaged in writing that seems to erase me because all of those concerns about civil rights struggles and women's rights struggles and those kinds of things, if those don't move forward, if they don't get paid attention to, if they don't get talked about, that negatively affects my ability to move forward in the world. And so I want writing that engages with the beauty of the greater than human world and the necessity to protect it, but also engages with these realities of, of politics and human cultural interactions and all of these things. And so it was imperative to me to write into that. Well, I'm expressing it here as anger, um, mm -hmm. but it's also, it's also ex exhaustion and hunger <laughs> um, to write into that hunger. Mm -hmm, mm hmm. Yes. And I know one of the quotes I pulled um, from page 72 is you write, maybe I don't see mothers in the canon of environmental literature because it's impossible for most mothers to create a world where they have nobody to think of but themselves. And mm -hmm. um, and then on page 88, there's that really short section where you talk about Suzanne as well. Do you want to read that little short section? To systematically exclude the lives of your neighbors from the space of your imagination requires a willful denial of nearly every experience outside your own. La la la, I'm not listening. It's not just her black neighbors' civil rights struggles that Dillard erases from Pilgrim at Tinker Creek. Such books erase just about everyone. Um, and now there's a text thread that's running through this section of the book, and this is the writer Suzanne Roberts um, contributing to this text thread. Dillard adopts the whole man alone in the wilderness, or in her case, the pastoral trope. I mean, Edward Abbey was generally with one of his four wives out there in the desert, but they never show up. It's pure fantasy. Yes. And I, you know, there's so much here. So there's the civil rights issue. There's this issue of, you know, beautiful writing, but also I wonder, and this is not at all an excuse, but I wonder if she adopted, if Dillard adopted this, this form because she needed to be like the men who had created these kinds of works before, right? Like, I don't know how much of it was wanting to emulate out of appreciation and earnest wish to be, sought you know to to be looked at the way that these men who had been respected for their environmental literature were or if it was you know what I mean like is it an act of emulation and erasure I don't know I mean it's both probably I think it's both probably she was a she was a great fan of um Thoreau and Walden and so we do emulate work to emulate those writing that we admire but also this is the early 1970s right and so mm. we have to be aware of um pressures publication mm -hmm. pressures and ideas about what can be published or not i i have had 
such a lucky opportunity with this um, in that my editor at Simon Schuster is a um, just a firecracker of a brain named Yadon Israel. And he's a, a black American thinker. I didn't have that sense when I was going through editing processes of like worrying about the white gaze in that mm. moment of editing. I had this other black, really free thinking individual looking at my work and pushing me always to take more chances and be more forthright and like encouraging my honesty as mm -hmm. opposed to being worried about sales numbers if I wasn't being honest, right? Mm. And so that that's like just a blessing that mm -hmm. I had in that in that editorial experience. Mm -hmm. Right, because to be honest and the more you can reveal about yourself is usually very gripping for a reader. Mm -hmm. the, the deeper mm -hmm. we go, the more we we show and you ask in the book, which I just love this, why disappear the people who people your world? And it's so effective, of course, how you then weave in your life life, like your real life into the section, you know, being a writer, a woman busy with all you do, plus, you know, mothering and cooking. And you show that it can, in fact, be done, that your work as a writer can be good and even stronger if we show all of who we are or that we're trying to create something for ourselves while living in the world right and mm -hmm. and doing what we mm -hmm. need to do like you can do it together mm -hmm. so you know with this editor and also in writing soil and and maybe even before then has your work you know has your approach to selecting what to include in your work or what to leave out changed now that you've spent more time thinking about how writers like Dillard and Abby chose to keep themselves alone in their work is is there you know has there been a, an actual shift or had you been moving toward that anyway I think I have been moving towards that anyway, and um, I'm really interested in, in truth. <laughs> and truth means not doing a lot of that Instagram cropping <laughs> where mm -hmm. um, you don't see the messy bits and you don't talk about the like boring parts of things. Um, um, or it's not so much about the boring parts of things, it's just the, the normal parts of yes. things. I think that I want a book that feels familiar to people. So you said, for instance, that you don't tend to read nature writing or gardening writing, but also you're a mother and a writer. And so that those aspects of my life are the parts with which you can connect. And then you can learn about my interest in the greater than human world, um, but you've had that connection. Or a black reader who picks up the book um, and may not be a mother, but could say, oh, I do know what it means mm. to be a black person in a predominantly white space or, or any person who happens to not be part of that um, predominant culture. I understand that feeling and I can learn these other aspects, right? So every time mm -hmm. I am true about any aspect of who I am and how I move through the world, I have a better chance of building a connection with somebody who honors me with the time to pick up my book. Yes. And you know, I love that. And also, there are times within the book, multiple times where you, you interrogate your behavior and yourself, 
And it's, you know, parts that maybe a writer could choose to leave out, but you include them because you're showing how much you're looking at yourself as closely as you're looking at the world and your garden. Mm, yeah, nothing gets conf- um, nothing gets improved without self <laughs> interrogation. Yes. Um, yes. If you don't do that sort of internal work, you can you you can't do any external work. And some of my mistakes are just funny in retrospect. <laughs> also, you know, yeah, you're sure. like, why did you do that? Um, like, you could have just called wildlife management and they could have dealt with that (laughs) you know like there's like these times where I'm like that was a whole day that you spent you didn't have to do um and so um, there are definitely those kinds of moments where our mistakes are our learning experiences but they're also space for um I think the kind of humor that that makes that makes the world feel more multidimensional. I was just telling my my creative nonfiction MFA class last night that there was a student who wrote a, a, a short essay with just be- beautiful moments of humor. It was a dead grandfather essay. Like, you know, this is like everything sad. And also like the, the, the real easy risk of sentimentality, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and with soil, I have all these spaces where there's like this risk of sentimentality or this risk of just living in, in anger or, you know, just one emotion mm-hmm. could take over something. But but when you kind of thread um, the opportunity for nuanced humor through things, it adds another dimension that moves us away from the risk of sentimentality because sentimentality is unfelt, unearned bid for an emotional response. Mm-hmm. And if things are, are unidimensional or on one tone, that's part of how it doesn't get earned. But if you, you can create depth and multidimensional feeling, which is how we usually move through the world, the writing can can move away from sentimentality and into something that feels more, more real. Mm-hmm. I haven't thought about sentimentality in that way like recently. Like I know about it and I, I'd forgotten to think about that as, as a feature in writing that, you know, is, you know, turns me away. And now that you mention it, I'm thinking about it again. It's been a long time since I reflected on sentimentality and, you know, my MFA program. So I appreciate that because it sort of helps me reorganize my thinking about the work that I read. And, and on that note, I was wondering if you could read from page 148 where it begins maintaining the fantasy of the American wilderness. And then we talked about a bunch of pages and it ends on 151, you know, the end of that. And I'll just let you follow your instincts as to where you want to end. Okay. I might jump around the section a little yeah, bit yeah, to, sure. to Please make do. that work. And I'll add like, I think one of the th- thoughts for me in addition to this question of sentimentality is like this book is really beyond braided it's like it's more like one of those um uh woven really deeply woven rugs or something because Mm -hmm. there's so many threads that um carry through it and like organizing and shaping this book was um, a monumental task. I think I did nine major revisions of this book. Um, And some of them included 
retyping the entire manuscript because I would change tenses or I would change majorly change sentence structure and the only way to do that would be to start typing the whole thing again um and to keep that organized was was uh exciting let's just say mm -hmm. but the reason it was crucial to me to continually have that really deeply woven structure in it was that I feel like that is also the only way to honestly represent the way my life works um, mm -hmm. is that my life is like so many threads happening all the time and I have to keep them moving across the page of my mm -hmm. life with that sort of really careful structural organization um, that we see in a rug. Okay, now I'm just going to read. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I also think in a way, like uh, aside from all the revisions, which, you know, we can't escape the revision. I, I, I hope if I ever write something like this, but I, I hope that this also means it can be freeing that, you know, there's a lot of work to embed and weave and, and get it all co cohesive like that. But also there's some freedom there for how you're going to do it. There is, there is, I think so. And I uh, narrate the audiobook version of the book and mm -hmm. I was so pleased when I did it in the week that I did it, I like, I didn't have any of those cringy moments. I was like, yes, all the things are in the place they're supposed to be mm -hmm. um, so as I read it out loud. And that was, that's the ultimate freeingness, right? So that's what mm -hmm. it's worth. But to like, I think to honestly describe this really complicated world that we live in that's where history and the present and the greater than human world and the people in our communities um, and politics like they're all in play like they should all be in play simultaneously mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. maintaining the fantasy of the american wilderness requires a great deal of work it requires the enforced silence of women, of black people, Chinese people, Japanese people, other East and South Asian communities, poor white people, indigenous people, Latinx people, human children, wolf cubs, other small and large mammals, lives that thrived in wetlands, lives that thrived in grassland prairies, lives that thrived in the desert, flower people, fish people, bird people, the list goes on and on. One of the reasons so many black gardeners express such fear on those online conversation boards is that this fantasy pervades so much American thinking, it is sometimes hard to recognize the exclusionary vision for what it is. People who have been erased from the vision feel like they are trespassing in territory where they're not allowed or like their presence will be condoned in only a qualified manner. A conscious or unconscious awareness that one's claim on the world could be revoked at any moment leaves no room for accidents or explorations, no room for planting a plant that won't grow properly, or for turning down a dead-end path, no room to feel comfortable gleaning a fallen pecan. My daughter's days are divided. She moves through subjects, reading, math, social studies, and the next day she does some version of the same. Fall, winter, spring, and again fall. The same story with slight variations. It's a kind of indoctrination, this brand of education, drilling into children that some voices are for outside and others for inside the house. 
but when most effective, learning leaves room for reframing. Overhearing and overseeing her lessons as Callie in the house alongside me learned fundamental building blocks of the knowledge sets that construct our world, challenged me to think differently about what I've learned and what I've had to discover. And so 2020 turned into a year for relearning, or more accurately, a year to discover how to better see truths that have been present all along. And then um, there's a section of dialogue where my daughter explains that she learned about manifest destiny in school. Mm-hmm. And my husband and I ask her um, what that means. And she says, people needed to conquer all the land, even though the land was already owned. Well, not really owned, but lived on. White people thought they wanted all the land. The Native Americans said, no, thank you. But the white people wanted it anyway, so they bombed their homes to get the land they wanted. Ray and I put down our forks. They bombed them? Well, they didn't really use bombs, but they took the land. You learned this in school. We learned about Manifest Destiny. We learned about them shooting Native Americans. Where'd you learn the rest? Callie looked pointedly at Ray and at me. And then um, I describe a little bit about the 1804 to 06 Corps of Discovery expedition. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, the white men who trekked across the continent with Meriwether Lewis and William Clark received enormous land grants. Um, and just for the sake of time, I will just like give you the spoiler that Sacagawea and York, who was the uh, enslaved man who traveled with them, did not receive these land grants. York didn't even receive the manumission Clark promised. The vast wilderness Thomas Jefferson's commissions claimed was intended only for white men. As Callie put it, these men wanted all the land. So much of this nation's environmental vision descends from a commission intended to benefit only a select few. But by naming the violence that ensured westward expansion, violence that encouraged a fantasy that much of the West was untrammeled by man, Callie joined the work of claiming space for herself and for others whom such violence works to erase. Someone asked me yesterday what hope looks like. Yesterday could be any day. Like hollyhocks had not bloomed, we're blooming, we're already spent. Tomorrow began years ago. When just yesterday someone asked me what hope looks like, they expected an answer that had something to do with protests, elections, and classroom pedagogy. But I'd just been outside. Even inside, the air from outside flowed through my fabric close to my skin. My garden, I answered, recalling the pine siskins rustling in the sunflowers, the bulbs I plant four to six inches deep every fall, whose blooms I believe in, though they won't manifest for months to come. 
The wildly whipping hollyhocks are welcome here, and so are the little purple larkspurs, the snapdragons, the birds, and the bugs, and the rabbits. I don't know who everyone is yet or where they will stand with my neighbor and me, but I am learning how to see and how to count them, hopefully more abundantly. On a break from her schoolwork, when summer chilled into autumn, Callie and I placed a new bird bath in the side yard where the prairie project rooted. Callie arranged two little piles of river rocks that jutted out of the water so bees could land and drink. A few days later, from the window near our piano, I watched a couple buzz a circle around the new bird bath and settle onto the rocky rest Callie so carefully built. The bees stayed there safely long enough to take a satisfying drink. Thank you. Uh, You're welcome. Yeah. So this, you know, the, the there's so much in there. I mean, there's really hard to pick, you know, what I wanted you to read. There's just so much to choose from. And I have sort of a nuts and bolts question, which is, and it might be silly to ask you this, but this section, this this group that you just read from, did it come out pretty much in this order when you were writing it? Or, or how much moving around happened after the fact? And how much did you discover on the page? And how much did you already pretty much know in this particular section you want, you needed to write about? A lot of moving around. And that's part of the retyping I spoke to that I needed sometimes to retype the entire manuscript from a printed out version in order to to keep all those moves in place and drafts where I have marks of what you know what threads are showing up and if there's too much of one thread how to insert reminders from other places so when I was listing that list of the those who were erased and I said the wetlands and the grassland prairies at other times I had had conversations about wetlands and eradicated grasslands and so I brought those back into the list to just kind of keep those chimes going um, and sometimes like comments and reminders that of of other ideas that are showing up or or that are going to show up sooner you know it, eventually so those 20 minute exercises that then as the year progressed and I realized I had this book project became 500 words and then a thousand words a day and you know those exercises then I have to cut and erase and reshape and form whole sections of ideas and meditations just disappeared because they didn't stay in the garden enough you know so Mm -hmm. there was a lot of reorganizing yeah it's a it's so interesting because I'm I kind of find myself to be and I've said this before on the show a little bit of a lazy writer like if I have to retype if I have to start from scratch I just balk at it I never want to do it so when I hear and I know it needs to be done in many cases so I just see how much of the writing of this book has to be revision so much of it was revision and a lot of revision for me is about c- cutting um, mm-hmm. more than more than adding. It is sometimes about moving things around. But I had at one point a, a 105,000 word page document mm-hmm. that I had to get. I think this is 82,000 words. And um, and so there was this like, oh, 
really horrible stretch of time (laughs) in the beginning of one year where I took 11,000 words a week and and pared them down to 8,000 words every week. Mm -hmm. And I would send those 8,000 words to my editor and a friend who served, shout out to Lucy Anderton, love of my life, um, who served (laughs) as a, a copy editor, proofreader for me. And then when I had compiled the whole thing, I sent it to another woman who served as um, a fact checker, which was super important because in that retyping process, I I inputted all kinds of really funny errors and, you know, didn't like didn't mean to necessarily, but or, you know, sometimes autocorrects, I'm sure. And yeah. so Mary would catch those. And so having a team to help me see the book in those ways is, was really, really crucial. Mm-hmm. I wanted to pivot a little bit as we start to get toward the end of this conversation. Your father, and, and I do want to say when you were talking about your dad earlier on and, and your parents and their garden, I wanted to say that they sound lovely, your parents. And, you know, I know they're not in this book a ton, but when they are in the book, I just really want to meet them. <laughs> They are delightful humans. Yeah, I can tell. I can tell. Um, Well, they raised a delightful human, right? Oh, thank you. Yeah. So so at one point, your father says, uh, for us, there is no separation between the environment and social justice. And resistance runs throughout this book, you know, resistance to destruction, to erasure, to exploitation, to doing what humankind has been doing to the planet. And, you know, about your poison-free yard, you write... By cultivating diversity, I learned things I never knew I should know. And I just, you know, I love that because I do think curiosity is so vital to my life and to my writing and to my parenting and all the things, my friendships. So this book is also about hope and creating what you want to see in the world. And I'm wondering what writing has, you know, writing this book has taught you about yourself as a mother as well. Wow, that's a really great question. I think this book has slowed me down as a mother. It has caused me to be much better at stopping and listening, just really listening to Callie, that's my daughter, and really um, trying to understand her decisions and honor her decisions. because in some ways and sort of being being conscious about the ways that not using herbicides and pesticides in my garden and using native plants and going step by step by ourselves instead of hiring a lot of landscaping crews like there's a lot actually in my yard that looks still looks like kind of crazy (laughs) um But there is a long-term vision that will manifest. And if I stopped myself now, because it looks chaotic, Adrian Rich, the poet, says, all learning looks at first like chaos. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so if I stop myself in this chaotic place and go back to what looks, you know, more neat and orderly because of its homogeneity... I don't get that long-term experience and I've, I've realized in that process of, of like writing that truth down that my daughter 
is in often in the chaos part of learning and I have to be patient mm. as she manifests. Mm-hmm. And actually that, you know, everything that has happened in our interview, I feel like is all connecting so beautifully. And I, my, my last question about, you know, that isn't what I ask everyone is when you look back on your early writing um, or maybe as a less experienced writer, when you were a less experienced writer, what stands out as something you didn't quite grasp about craft or the discipline that you think is now second nature to you? Well, I think I'll return to that idea that writing takes time. But I'm not sure that that time has to be eight working hours at a desk. I don't think that that's a model that's practical for a lot of people in the world. And so for me, I've had to learn over and over in lots of different ways how to be a writer in the world, even if I don't have eight solid hours. Mm-hmm. Yep. Very helpful. So what are some of your favorite memoirs or books of essays that you'd like to recommend? Right. Um, in Soil, I speak to some books that I, I really love. Um, I mentioned Pam Houston's Deep Creek, which is just such a beautiful, beautiful meditation on um, how to make a home, not find a home, but make a home. <laughs> it's just lovely. And Ross Gay, uh, I also speak to one of his collections, The Book of Delight. Those are those are collections that I really love. But there's two collections that come to mind that I don't mention in the book. One is a book called Motherhood So White by Nefertiti Austin. It's a memoir of race, gender, and parenting in America and speaks to her experience as a, a black woman mother of an adoptive child and it is it is smart and important and I think really necessary reframing of adoption narratives and motherhood mm -hmm. narratives and race and gender questions really interesting book and then the other book which I didn't know about until way too late in the process of writing soil to include it in soil is a is a re-release of a memoir that was published in the late 1960s by a woman named Josephine Johnson. And that book is called The Inland Island, A Year in Nature. And it is essentially everything that I would have wanted <laughs> um, for um, when I was sort of pushing back against Pilgrim at Tinker Creek. If you go and look at the Amazon reviews of the re-release, there are a lot of people who say, well, I just want to be wandering through her land. She's talking about this this acreage in Ohio that she rewilded. And I don't understand why she keeps bringing in the Vietnam War and the civil rights <laughs> struggle. And I'm like, go, Josephine Johnson. <laughs> yes. <laughs> bring these things in. <laughs> yes, bring so, more, more. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Bring me your wars. <laughs> exactly. I love, I just love her kind of full engagement in the whole world in the mm -hmm. book. Mm -hmm. Yeah, thank you. And then do you have any parting advice you'd like to give memoirists or writers in general? I just want to tell people to honor their journey and be kind 
be kind to yourself, but also committed to yourself, which means that regular attention. And I sometimes think that can be as little as 10 minutes a day that you just dedicate to jotting down notes, thinking about how you want to be thinking as a writer. And if you honor that part of yourself regularly enough, she, I'm saying she, that person <laughs> um, <laughs> gets fed and, and will grow. Oh, you did it. You just wound that up so beautifully. Um, <laughs> um, thank you. And, and Camille, where is the best place for people to find you and your work? Well, I mean, that's one of the exciting things about this um, particular book. I think you can find Soil, the story of a Black Mother's Garden, everywhere books are sold. Um, <laughs> you can visit my website, CamilleDungy.com, and click a link there. If you order through my local bookstore and let them know, I can run down and get a signed copy for you. And you can find out how to do that on my website. But anywhere books are sold, as of May 2nd, 2023, yeah. you should be able yeah. to get soil. It's so exciting. I can't wait for everyone to read your book. And thank you for being my guest. I loved being able to talk with you about so many different parts of your book and your work. Thank you. Thank you so much. This was a delightful conversation. And I like just love this podcast. So I'm happy to be part of it. Thank you for tuning in to Let's Talk Memoir. For more about this episode and my guest, please visit the link in the show notes or on Instagram at Ronit Plank. That's R-O-N-I-T-P-L-A-N-K. You can also follow me on Twitter, Facebook, and TikTok. If you liked this episode of Let's Talk Memoir, please go ahead and share it with your friends and subscribe. And if you have two more seconds, you can rate and review it on Apple Podcasts, which really does help other people find the show. Thank you so much for being here.